Father, I pray that you would help us each to answer that question that we've sung, that we've asked ourselves in that last song, are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Lord, the blood of Christ is the only hope that we have. Lord, just knowing who we are, what we have done to sin against you, um, who we are in and of ourselves and our inability to even make one motion toward you. Lord, we place no confidence in ourselves. We place all of our confidence in Jesus Christ and his righteous life and his atoning death and his glorious resurrection. Lord, may each one of us here be resting in the crucified. May we not be resting in our own works or our own, even our own ability to believe because we don't have that ability apart from you. Help us to rest in your sovereign everlasting arms. Help us to rest in the work that Jesus Christ has done. Um, faith is not trusting in our faith. Faith is trusting in Christ. Help us to be doing that this morning. And we pray for the message, Lord, the sermon, uh, the scriptures that we're going to look at. May you use these verses to secure that in our hearts, that, that we would be driven to you, to rest in you, to abandon all hope in ourselves and to locate all of our hope in the person of Jesus Christ. May you accomplish that through this message this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. As you know, we'd placed a box on the organ here and we were collecting various questions from you all, things that you were wondering about, things that you would find helpful to walk through the scriptures on a Sunday morning about. And I thank you for all the questions you did submit. Uh, I won't be able to address all of them in this first go-around, but we're going to spend the next month and a half to two months just working through some of those questions. And then we'll stop and we'll go through another book of the Bible together, which is our normal way of teaching here on a Sunday morning. That's our habit, and we'll keep it our habit. But after going through that next book of the Bible, we'll return to some of these questions and, and seek to answer the rest of them. I had originally said that we would spend only a month doing this, but some of your questions will need to be answered over the course of multiple messages uh, because they're addressing subjects that are too big to satisfactorily answer in just one sermon. So it seemed best to maybe extend that time frame a little bit. During this first go-around, we'll be addressing your questions regarding family roles, regarding parenting, regarding the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives and how that uh, interconnects with the assurance of our salvation and maybe one or two other questions that you had. And I, like I said, we'll do this again, so if your question doesn't get answered, um, it'll get answered then. One of your questions that is too big to answer in one sermon had to do with the topic of predestination and the confusion that surrounds that doctrine. And seeing as how we were touching on that subject in Sunday school, I thought it would be appropriate to address it here as well. And as we saw in Sunday school, this is a deep, deep subject that even if I were to spend the rest of my lifetime preaching on, I would not be able to resolve all of our questions about it. But hopefully today and next week will point you to enough of the scriptures to give you a good start, at least 
to begin to wrap your arms around what the Bible has to say about it. And as always, I encourage you to make sure that you check everything I say against the Word of God. And if you find that I depart from the Word of God, you follow the Word of God, not, not what I say. So let's just get into it. We're talking this morning about the doctrine of predestination. And before I even talk about what that means, it's a big word, I want to point out that this, this doctrine, what the Bible teaches about predestination, is first of all rooted in the sovereignty of God. It's rooted in the sovereignty of God. To predestine means to determine beforehand. Hence the word pre, before, destine, determine the end of something. It's to determine beforehand. And this doctrine says that your eternal destination is determined by God before you even existed. And because God is sovereign, that is, because he's in control of all things, he is able to do that. He is able to determine the outcome of things before they happen. In fact, even before God created the world, ever before he created the world, he decreed or he planned or he decided how the history of the world from beginning to end was going to play out. And this plan, this decree, this decision of God, this purpose of God is eternal. That is, it was in place before he even said, let there be light. This plan of God was in place. And I need to show you that from the scriptures. So we're going to be doing a lot of turning of pages this morning because I don't want you to take my word for it. But we're going to see that the plan of God is eternal. It took place, it was in place even before God created time and said, let there be light. So first of all, let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. We're going to see the eternality of the plan of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 6. Paul is speaking of the wisdom of God, that is, the wisdom of God that was manifested in his sending his son to die on the cross to save sinners. Chapter 2, verse 6. Paul says, Yet we do speak wisdom among those who are mature. A wisdom, however, not of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are passing away. But we speak God's wisdom in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory. So this plan of God's was in place before the ages. Next, let's go to Ephesians chapter 1. This is Paul writing to believers, telling them of the innumerable innumerable blessings that are theirs in Jesus Christ. Ephesians 1, starting in verse 3, Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. Then turn over to chapter 3, starting in verse 8. 
Paul says, to me, the very least of all saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ and to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery, which for ages has been hidden in God, who created all things. Verse 10, so that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. This was in accordance with the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord. God's purpose is eternal. Next, let's go to 2 Timothy chapter 1. Second Timothy chapter 1, verse 9. Paul is speaking about the power of God who, verse 9, has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. From all eternity. And then lastly, let's go to 1 Peter chapter 1. I'm just trying to give you a whole bunch so that as far as I'm able, I'm removing all doubt about what I'm trying to show you here. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 20. For he, speaking of Christ, was foreknown before the foundation of the world but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you. Again, all of these passages are showing various aspects of God's purpose and showing how God's purpose is eternal. It was in place ever before he made anything. So not only, though, we will see, not only is this plan of his eternal, but it is also all-encompassing. The passages we looked at mostly had reference to our salvation, to what God would do through Christ. But there are other passages that say that this purpose of God was all-encompassing. It didn't only involve our salvation. It involves literally everything. There is nothing that happens in this world that is not a part of God's eternal plan. Let's first go to Isaiah to see this. Isaiah 46. We're looking at verses 8 through 10. Isaiah 46, verse 8. Remember this and be assured. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things long past. For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me, declaring the end from the beginning. How is God able to do that? How is he able to declare the, the, the beginning of history from the end of history? He has it all in his mind from all eternity. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things which have not been done, saying, my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. So all of history from the end to the beginning involves the good pleasure of God And he is going to accomplish all of it. Next, let's go to Romans chapter 11. Verse 
Romans chapter 11, verse 33. This is the famous doxology of Paul after he's finished declaring 11 chapters worth of truth to these believers. And he ends that teaching section on the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. Verse 33 of chapter 11. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who became his counselor, or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? For from him and through him and to him are how many things? All things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. And then lastly, Ephesians again, chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11. Which says, In him also, speaking of Christ, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will. God works all things after the counsel of his will. So we've seen that God's plan is eternal and it is all-encompassing, which means that when it comes to the doctrine of predestination, when it comes to what God is determining beforehand will occur, that touches everything, literally everything, in all of creation from the beginning of time on to the eternal state when Jesus comes back and ushers in the kingdom of God. Everything is under the umbrella of predestination. And there's much more that could be said, but this is predestination, generally speaking. Now, part of what falls under that big umbrella of predestination is our salvation. And when we talk about predestination or we think about it, that's typically what we're thinking of, our salvation. And predestination certainly includes that, but it's important to remember that predestination involves a whole lot more than just that. Because if you fail to understand the breadth of God's predetermining purpose, you will not properly understand the sliver of it that is in reference to our salvation. So we need to remember that. But let's turn to that more narrow sense of predestination, the sense in which it refers to our salvation. This more specific sense of predestination is like a coin that has two sides. One side is election, and the other side is a term called reprobation. And I'll explain what these words mean as we come to them. And I'm only covering election today. We'll touch the other side of the coin next week. That's why the outlines I gave, I gave you a whole bunch of space for election, and I crammed everything else at the bottom. We're not going to touch that until next week. We're just looking at election right now, that first side of the coin of predestination. Well, first of all, what does election mean? What does that word mean? Well, what are you doing, for instance, in a political election? You are choosing someone. That's why it's called an election. You are choosing who to vote for. You're choosing who you want to be in office. Or when you go to college, 
You know, there's certain courses you are required to take that you cannot get your degree unless you take. But there are other courses that you have the option whether to take or not. You have the choice of which of those you would like to take. And what are those courses called? Electives. Electives. Biblically speaking, election is simply a word that refers to God's choice. God's choice. Election refers to the fact that God has elected or chosen or predestined certain individuals to receive salvation. Believers are referred to several times in the scriptures as the elect. For example, you don't have to turn there, Romans 8.33. That verse says, who will bring a charge against God's elect, or that is, against God's chosen ones? Another example is 1 Peter 1, verses 1 through 2, which describes believers as those who are chosen or elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. So that's what election means. That means God's choice of individuals unto salvation. And this brings us to some questions. Why are believers in particular described as chosen? And what is involved in God's choosing of them? You know, when, when we have a political election, we consider the position of the politician, how he's voted in the past, there's certain qualities of the man or the woman that we kind of take into account to decide whether or not to choose them. Well, it's not like that with God's election, and we're going to see that. Turn with me to Romans chapter 8, and this is where we're going to camp for the majority of our time. Romans chapter 8. I already referenced verse 33, which says, Who will bring a charge against God's elect? But there are some verses before that that show how God's elect became elect in the first place. And that, those verses are 28 to 30. Romans 8, 28 to 30. This is what Paul says. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. In verse 28, we see Paul speak of an extraordinary promise that God has made to believers. Verse 28 is a promise. And that promise is that if you're a believer, God is causing all things, all things, good things and bad things, comfortable things and painful things. He's causing all things to conspire together, to work together for the good of them who love God and are called according to his purpose. That means whether I have a car accident or I'm enjoying a nice afternoon playing catch with my son, God is causing both of those kinds of things to work together for my good in Christ Jesus. Now, that is an incredible promise. How does Paul know 
that's true? How can you and I know for sure that's true? When my face is on the floor and I'm suffering great heartache, how can I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that that is working together for my good? Well, verses 29 to 30 give us the reason why we can know that God causes all things to work together for good for believers. He says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. The reason that we can believe, verse 28, is because God has predestined us to be conformed to the image of his Son. That is our destiny as believers. And nothing can stop that destiny from coming about, which is why it's called destiny. If it was in question whether or not it would come about, it wouldn't be destiny. That is the destiny that God has predetermined for believers, and nothing can stop it. Therefore, everything that we face in this life necessarily is moving us toward that destiny. If that is the only outcome for believers that I'm be finally conformed to the image of Christ in my character, that means that everything I face up until then is simply moving me toward that. If you have turned from your sins and you have surrendered your life to Jesus Christ in faith, if you are trusting him to be your Savior and Lord, your destiny is guaranteed, and every single circumstance of life that you ever face will do nothing but cut off the sin and mold the character of Christ in your life, somehow, some way. And verse 30 speaks of that irreversible trajectory that we as believers are on. It's an unbreakable chain of events that God has He's pushed over that first domino and he's making sure every other domino falls. Verse 30, these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. Notice it's the same group being moved along from one step to the other. Those predestined, that same group he also called. Those called, that same group he also justified. Those who were justified, that same group he glorified. There's nobody who gets on the bus of predestination who fails to remain on that bus until glorification. And the promise of verse 28 is anchored in the predestinating purpose of God. Now in verse 29 we find that there is something prior to predestination, and that is God's foreknowledge, his foreknowledge. It's what he knew before. What does that mean, though? What is God's foreknowledge? Well, it is his choosing of his people beforehand. It is his intimate knowing of them. It is his incorporating them into his saving purposes. It is his decision to predestinate them to faith in and salvation by Jesus Christ. In other words, it's his election of us, his choosing of us. Now, some disagree with this understanding of foreknowledge. Some think that 
God's foreknowledge is simply his bare knowledge of the future. That God looked down the corridor of time and he saw the fact that some people would believe in him. And on that basis, God decided to predestine them for salvation. In other words, this view maintains, apparently, that God saw you place your faith in Christ, and because you did that, he said, hey, that's great. I'm going to make sure you get to heaven. I'm going to predestine you for heaven. I'm going to choose you for heaven because I saw you choose me. Another way to say it is that God saw that we would choose him, and because we chose him, God decided to choose us. Now, those who hold that view are attempting to say that our faith is the cause of God's choosing of us, that our faith is the cause of his predestining of us rather than it being the other way around. And there are several problems with this understanding of God's foreknowledge. And I'm going to give you seven problems with this understanding of foreknowledge. I'm arguing, hopefully from the scriptures, that it's God's choosing of us that results in our believing in him. But the view that I've mentioned here argues the opposite. They say it's my belief in God that caused his choosing of me. And it's that view that I'm hopefully going to show you is not what the Bible teaches. First of all, this view fails to account for the fact that this verse, chapter 8, verse 29, does not say that God foreknew a fact about me, that he knew in advance that I was going to believe. What does it actually say? It says that he foreknew you yourself. He didn't know a fact about you. He knew you. It says, those whom he foreknew. Second, this view fails to account for the fact that when God is said to know his people, it often means far more than just knowing facts about them. It means entering into a saving relationship with them. It means showing his favor to them to bring them into a state of reconciliation with himself. For example, keep your finger in Romans 8, but turn over to Exodus 33, where we see this kind of knowing by God. Exodus 33, and there's other places we could turn to, but I'm settling for this one. Exodus 33, verse 17, says, The Lord said to Moses, I will also do this thing of which you have spoken. For you have found favor in my sight, and I have known you by name. Clearly, God, when he says, I've known you by name, he knows, he means more than I know your name. Well, yeah, he's God. He knows everybody's name. That would bring no comfort to Moses for God to say, yeah, I know your name. He knows everybody's name. This knowing is a far more meaningful knowing, and it's tied with his showing favor to Moses. That's the kind of knowing that is involved here. And I don't think that view takes into account that that could be the kind of knowing that Paul is speaking of regarding God's foreknowing of us. Third, this, this view that my faith is what causes God's choosing of me, 
This view fails to take into account the sovereignty of God over all things. This is why I said that predestination is a much larger umbrella than simply our salvation. It covers everything. God predestines all things because he's sovereign over everything. Our believing in him is not the lone exception to that. It's not. We just saw in many verses his purpose encompasses everything, including our faith. Fourth, this view fails to take into account what the word for foreknowledge means in other scriptures. Sometimes it does mean a simple knowing of the facts ahead of time. But other times, especially when this word is used of God knowing someone beforehand, it means far more than just knowing the facts. In fact, we already saw this over in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 20. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 20, speaking of Jesus, for he was foreknown, same word, for he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you. Now is Peter saying that God knew the facts about Jesus before it happened? He's obviously saying something far more than that. The word foreknown, certainly it's not less than God knowing the facts beforehand, but it also includes the ideas of purpose and choosing and determining something to be, his plan. God planned Jesus to show up in these last days to accomplish our salvation. Fifth, this view fails to account for the fact that we are spiritually depraved apart from him. We are spiritually dead. We have no ability whatsoever to come to faith at all apart from God's granting it to us. To say that God looked down the corridor of time to see whether or not we will believe and then makes his choice of us based on that is to imply that our believing is dependent on us rather than on God. It is to say that we chose to believe apart from any previous planning by God, since he has to look down the quarter of time and then figure out what we were going to do and then fit his plan around that. It is to say that God did not grant us faith. We decided to believe purely by ourselves. But is that what the Bible says? I would say the Bible is extremely emphatic that that is not the reality. Turn with me to John chapter 6. I want you to get your fingers ready because this is all over the scriptures. It's all over the place. John chapter 6. Jesus is talking to the Jews that he just gave a free meal to when he fed the 5,000 from a few loaves of bread and some fish. But he's trying to get them to long for more than just physical food. He wants them to come to him who is the bread of life itself. But this is what he says regarding our ability to come to him. And in the context of this chapter, coming to Jesus means believing in Jesus. 
John chapter 6, verse 44, Jesus said, No one can or no one is able to come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Now this drawing of God, this drawing of us to Jesus, it's more than God just giving us some arguments and getting us up to the foot of the cross and then taking his hands off and saying, now you decide, you decide. No, this drawing is completely effective because what happens to the ones who are drawn to Jesus? What happens to the ones who come to him? It says, I will raise him up on the last day. This coming is a coming all the way to Jesus. This drawing by God is a bringing us all the way to Christ because it results in our resurrection to life eternal. And Jesus reiterates this in the same chapter down in verse 65. And he was saying, For this reason I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. We do not come to faith unless God grants it to us. We see this in Acts chapter 11. Acts chapter 11. The fact that we have to be granted it from the Father implies that in and of ourselves we're not able to believe. We're not able to come to Christ. Acts chapter 11, verse 18. This is Peter recounting to the Jews the fact that God is saving Gentiles. When they heard this, they quieted down and glorified God, saying, Well then, God has granted to the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. They just assumed that Gentiles were not going to be saved. And then when Peter says, The Holy Spirit fell on Cornelius, a Gentile, and his whole household, what is the conclusion they draw? They didn't say, Oh yeah, the Gentiles, they're smart enough finally to, to recognize the truth. No, they say, well, I guess God is granting repentance to them also. They assume that the Gentiles couldn't come on their own, that God had to grant repentance to them. Chapter 13, verse 48. This is Paul preaching the gospel. Chapter 13, verse 48, when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. Why did the Gentiles believe? Because God appointed them to eternal life. Then chapter 16, verse 14, we find Lydia, A woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God, was listening, and the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken of by Paul. She would not have responded if God had not first opened her heart. Back over to Romans 8. Hopefully you kept your finger there. Romans 8, verses 6 through 8, explain why I cannot come to Christ on my own. Romans 8, 6 to 8. Paul says, For the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the spirit is life and peace. 
Because the mindset in the flesh, that's a description of unbelievers, because the mindset in the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. What is faith if not a willing subjection of yourself to the truth of God? But because as unbelievers we're hostile to God, we will never submit ourselves to God unless he does something in our hearts first. Again, keep your finger in Romans 8, but head over to 1 Corinthians 2. Again, I'm taking you through all of these verses not to torture you, but to try to make it unmistakably clear what the Bible has to say. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 14, Paul is describing the unbeliever as a natural man. And he says in verse 14, But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. And he cannot, notice that, he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. Head over to Ephesians chapter 2. Again, this, is, this passage is speaking of our inability to come to him because of what we are by nature. Ephesians 2, 1 to 3, Paul says, And you were dead. How dead is dead? Dead means dead, not almost dead, not mostly dead, like that guy from the Princess Bride movie. He's almost dead or he's mostly dead. No, we as unbelievers were dead, dead, dead. And what can a dead man do? Nothing but stink. That's all a dead man can do. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. He's writing to believers, talking about what they were before Christ. They were dead in their trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. We were, not even, we were not only dead, we were worse than dead. We were alive to the things God hates. We were alive to what our flesh wanted. We were dead to God. We were alive to what our flesh wanted. Coming to faith is denying flesh in order to desire God and This says we're not able to do that in and of ourselves. And then lastly, Philippians 1, verse 29. Paul just says it in passing like it's assumed. He doesn't even stop to explain it. Philippians 1, 29, he says, For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. What does Paul take for granted? That we, in order to believe, need to be granted that from God. So that's the fifth problem with this view, that God chose us based on our response to him. Sixth, a sixth problem with this view, back in Romans 8, notice that verses 29 to 30 say nothing at all about what we have done. Who's doing everything in these verses? God is. It's all what 
God has done. Faith doesn't technically come into the picture until halfway through verse 30 between called and justified. When we are justified, it's when God forgives us and he declares us righteous, and it comes about by faith. That is where faith comes into picture when God justifies us. Justification is by faith alone. Prior to that, it's all God all the way up until that point. And even at justification, Paul doesn't even mention our faith because he's highlighting the sovereign initiative of God throughout. The only reason we came to faith was because God effectually called us, which then resulted in justification. Faith was merely the instrument through which the calling resulted in justification. God was doing it, doing it all. To say that my faith is the, rather the cause of all of this is to add to Scripture. It is to take a red pen to the Word of God in Romans 8, and it is to insert my response of faith before all the actions of God. Verse 29 says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. But this view would rather this verse say, For those who believed God, God foreknew. And those whom God foreknew, he also predestined. It is ultimately to anchor the promise of verse 28 in my human response rather than in the sovereign and almighty intervention of God. To say that God chose me because I believed in him is to strip verse 28 of all its comfort because it ultimately depends on my human response. It depends on me to make it to glorification. And thankfully, that is not the case. God did not choose us because he saw that we would believe. Rather, we believed because God chose us. What did Jesus say to his disciples in John chapter 15, verse 16? You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit, and that your fruit would remain, so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give to you. God's foreknowledge of us is his sovereign choice to grant us his favor and his salvation. Because of his foreknowing us, he predestined us to be conformed to his Son, and he called us out of darkness into his marvelous light, granting us faith to believe, and he justified us, and he will glorify us. Seventh, and most importantly, the view that our faith is the reason for God's choosing of us diminishes the amount of glory that God receives in our salvation. How so? Well, those who hold the view that God chooses us and predestines us to salvation because he saw that we would believe in the future, those who hold that view also typically teach that because all men are born dead in sin, God gives all men just enough grace to make them a little bit spiritually alive so that they are in the position to be able to choose for themselves whether or not to accept Christ by faith. And some end up choosing Christ, and others decide, no, I don't want that. Now, Scripture does not teach that anywhere, that God gives all men just enough grace to 
get us just enough out of the grave to get a glimpse of Christ, and then God's kind of holding us up, and if I say I want him, he'll bring me all the way up. If I say no, he'll just let me drop back into the grave. No, we are dead. The Bible doesn't say he makes me a little bit alive and then lets me choose. It says I'm dead. I'm dead. But even if that's true, if that is true that God makes all men just alive just enough to be in the position to choose for themselves whether or not to believe, then we have to ask a question. Why did I believe when others did not? If God makes us all alive just enough so that I myself can make the decision, why did I choose Christ when others did not? If I cannot trace the reason for my faith to God's choice of me, then I have to trace the reason for my believing to something in myself. What made me different from those who rejected Jesus? Was I wiser than them? Was I smarter than them? Was I more humble than them? If the reason I believed is ultimately due to something in myself, then I have something to boast about, don't I? But the gospel expressly denies that man has any ground for boasting at all. Ephesians 2.9 says that salvation is a gift of God, not of works, so that no man may boast. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Look at what Paul says in verses 26 to 31. He completely blows out of the water this idea that God chose me because of something in me. He says, For, I, for consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong, and the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen, the things that are not, so that he may nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God. But by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus." who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption so that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. We have no wisdom that would make us decide over someone else to go all the way with Jesus. We have no inner goodness by which we could, in and of ourselves, choose Christ while others do not. We need Christ to be all of that to us. And God is the one who takes the initiative in choosing us so that we may be placed in Christ and Christ may become our all in all. It's his doing that we are in Christ, not our own doing. And I don't have time to go here, but the other key predestination passage is Ephesians 1, 3 through 14. And I want you to, on your own time to read that passage prayerfully and to notice who it is taking the initiative the whole way and who it is that gets all the glory. It's God, not man. God did not choose us because he saw that we would believe. We believe because he chose us and caused us to be born again and granted us repentance 
and the faith to believe. Now I have to stop here. Next week we'll look at the other side of the coin of predestination. But some may be asking this morning, how do I know if God has chosen to save me or not? You're telling me, Josh, there's nothing I can do. There's, I'm just here at the mercy of God. Well, yes, you are at the mercy of God. You cannot save yourself. But God has given you a way to know that he has chosen you. You can know for sure today. Because as we've seen, what does God's choice of us result in? Our repenting and believing, right? So if you repent and believe today, you will know that he has chosen you. You have the responsibility to respond to what Christ is offering you. Don't let the idea of the sovereignty of God keep you from overlooking your own responsibility to do what God is commanding you to do, which is repent and believe. Look to Jesus Christ. See what he has done to save sinners. Look at the perfectly righteous life he lived in order to provide a righteous standing to sinners. Look at the sacrificial death that he died on the cross to pay for the sins of sinners. Look at the glory of the resurrection that Jesus accomplished so that sinners could be given, would be given eternal life. And then seeing all that Jesus is and all that Jesus has done, take a look at your sin and your rebellion against your creator. Which of those will you choose to hang on to? Will you persist in living for yourself? And will you maintain your death grip on your sin which is dragging you to hell? Or Will you repent? Will you turn away from living for yourself? Will you let go of your sin in order that by faith you may lay hold of Jesus Christ? Jesus who is infinitely more precious, infinitely more satisfying, infinitely more glorious than any sin this world has to offer you. And if you see the glory of Christ and you see the ugliness of your sin and you turn from your sin to grasp Christ, if you repent and believe in Jesus for salvation, then you can know that God has chosen to save you because you never would have repented and believed unless he had chosen you. So choose Jesus, and you will find that he first chose you, not because of anything in you, but purely by his grace and mercy. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and how clearly it lays it out for us. Sometimes what makes it hard to understand is our unwillingness to, to submit to what it clearly says. Lord, may that not be the case. Lord, may we submit to what your word clearly tells us. And may we not shirk our responsibility to respond to Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you that you have chosen us because that tells us that our destiny is assured because it's you, not me, working my salvation through Jesus Christ. My destiny is assured. Lord, help us to run far away from any, any tendency to place our hope in ourselves. May you drive us continually to the cross of Christ, we pray in his name. Amen.